Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. We knew the war in Ukraine was probably coming, and since Moscow invaded seven weeks ago, we've all been able to see some of the most minute details of what's happened, where, in close to real time. The information revolution may have changed warfare forever. This war is the first clearest example of war occurring in, essentially in the jargon, a transparent battle space. There is no longer any way in which an army, navy or air force can expect to move around the world at any scale and not be spotted from space. And it's no longer just shadowy government figures who control intelligence on military manoeuvres. An army of amateur investigators is collecting, analysing and sharing open source intelligence. We'll talk to one of them. The day of the invasion, you know, on top of my workday, I probably spent another six to nine hours on Twitter and, you know, looking for information. I think just the amount of people who are looking into things and providing analysis, I think it's a goldmine. That open source intelligence has made clear the invasion's not gone to plan so far. But with a new Russian command in place, could this be a turning point? And if the Falklands War had played out online, what would it have looked like? A veteran of the campaign tells us why he's tweeting events of exactly 40 years ago. The important thing is watching the reactions from the people who are following the Twitter feed, both British and Argentine veterans. This week, we learned that an eight-mile Russian military convoy was heading south towards the contested Donbass region of Ukraine. We also learned that the missile which hit the Kramatorsk railway station, killing more than 50 people, had the words for children written on it in Russian. We even now know its serial number. None of this intelligence has come from militaries or government agencies. Instead, publicly available satellite images, photos and videos have revealed the information. Hello. Hello. Recordings of Russian phone and radio conversations are also being posted online, both by Ukraine security services and ordinary civilians. This recording posted on YouTube by an account called Everything Will Be Ukraine seems to be a phone call home by a Russian soldier talking about looting a village and the death of a Russian commander. Many of those gathering, analysing and checking this open source intelligence are not professionals, but people who've chosen to investigate in their spare time. Hi, my name's Kyle Glenn. I'm the co-founder at the Twitter account Conflict News and also a co-host of the OSINT Bunker podcast. At the moment, I've been looking at a lot of satellite imagery, especially from Mariupol. You know, from the reports there, it seems a city is maybe days away from being fully captured. So, you know, it's really useful, the satellite imagery. You know, you can use, you know, certain lenses or filters i don't know how to describe it but you can you can see fires burning in cities you can literally track the front line of the battles moving through the city just by from where the the fires are burning so kyle what's your day job i work for a clinical research company quite far away from what i do on social media yes but it does sound like it's analyzing detail Um, what open source intelligence work do you do i look a lot uh free satellite imagery which is open to absolutely everyone and I also kind of scour social media, Telegram, Twitter, you know, the Russian Facebook equivalent, VK, just looking at trying to find what's happening. And what attracted you to this line of uh, interest? 
I've always been interested in the impact that social media has had on how you know war and conflict and protests have been covered, especially in the last decade or so, with the Arab Spring and obviously the the wars in uh, Syria and Libya. And then, you know, 2014 came around, the Maidan protests in Ukraine. I was on Reddit at the time and they were looking for people to help run a, a live thread, constantly updating what was happening. So I helped out with that for a little while. You know, I met like-minded people and we created the Conflict News Twitter account from there, which at, at the time focused, you know, primarily on Ukraine after the the protests, um, the annexation of annexation of Crimea and, you know, the, the invasion into the Donbass region. And what is it you want to achieve? That's well, a great question. It's not something I've really thought of, you know, in terms of, like, wanting to achieve. Um but, you know, what, what I try to do is just provide a little bit more context, provide, you know, information for a wider audience to see and be able to make their minds up. You know, we found a lot of reporting, especially in the early days of Russia around Ukraine and stuff like that. There, there was, you know, there was a lot of headlines and a lot of articles, but little in the way of, of evidence. So, you know, a, a newspaper might say there's 80,000, 100,000 Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. But, you know, there'd be no photos, there'd be no videos, there'd be nothing to kind of back up that claim. And, you know, people were obviously very sceptical being able to provide actual evidence with the claim. You know, myself and others, we kind of hoped that we could allow people to see the evidence and, you know, come to the conclusion themselves that this wasn't, you know, the same as other years and it was a real, real threat. And in the Ukraine conflict, what are your most important sources of information and what can they tell us? Um, I think at the moment, the most important source of information, all the information, all the sources I get the most information from are Russian and Ukrainian language telegram channels. They've primarily focused on like Russian and Ukrainian language sources and they have access to a lot more of, you know, like sources on the ground, which is something I don't have a huge amount of. I've spoken to people in Mariupol and spoken to people in Kiev and spoken to people in Odessa, for example, but it's very difficult to find these sources. So with, with these Russian and Ukrainian language telegram channels, which, you know, have the information and are putting it out, it gives us, you know, a great kind of... Uh, head start on looking into what may or may not have happened um, when when the claims are made. And how do you actually verify what you're looking at? So I use a, a few different methods. It really depends what I'm trying to verify. So photos, the kind of first thing I do is run the images through reverse search engines, which will try to find if that image is old, if it's appeared anywhere else in the past. Secondly, you know, you'll look at the source so again if we go back to the missile attack in, in Kramatorsk quite luckily there was a lot of photos and videos that came out very quickly the same area from multiple angles so there was obviously multiple people taking photos and videos of the same aftermath just the amount of media that came out kind of lends support to the event being credible at first you know if it was just one photo of a blurry fire for example it, it's not a whole lot to go on to but it were very clear images coming out of um, casualties after the missile strike. And then in the photos as well, it was very clearly in front of a train station. Very simply, I googled Kramsworth's train station and I compared images on Google to images I was seeing in, in the photos coming out from this track. Obviously they matched up. I looked on Google Maps, um, you know, Google satellite images. So very quickly it was, you know, evident that you know, that particular event was, you know, one recent and two it is where people were saying it was 
And what's the most important or surprising discovery you've made analysing open source intelligence? I think the most surprising thing, especially prior to the invasion, was how Russia wasn't going to any real lengths to hide what they were doing. Every day, for months leading up to the invasion, there were dozens of videos posted on, on TikTok of trains carrying Russian equipment, military equipment, towards the Ukrainian border. They were storing this equipment in already well-established military bases, which you know you can just find openly on the internet. Through satellite imagery, we could see the size of these bases were increasing to a, you know, a huge size. And again, they were, they were making absolutely no secret about what they were doing or what they were planning, it seemed, for, mm. for many, many months. I mean, there will be people listening to this who may be mm. thinking anyone can post anything on the internet, leave the yes. intelligence to the professionals, you're just making things harder. How often do you get that kind of reaction and what's your response to it? Quite like, luckily, I don't get a huge amount of comments like that. Luckily, um, but I, you know, I have seen people say, say similar things. You know, there are accounts, Bellingcat, for example, who started. You know, Elliot Higgins. He started from exactly like myself. He wasn't a professional. You know, right now the world leading Bellingcat. You know, they did very, a lot of excellent work on the MH17 shootdown in Ukraine. Um, I believe they provided a lot of evidence to the Hague in regards to that. So, you know, it shows that amateurs like like them, well, not so much amateurs anymore, they're not, but like, you know, like myself and like others, you know, they can have a use. Open source intelligence investigator Kyle Glenn. Well, the high-end professionals are also making significant use of open source intelligence. Indeed, parts of UK defence intelligence assessments that we get each day come from the same sort of sources that Kyle is checking. Former Command of Joint Forces Command General Sir Richard Barons told BFBS SITREP it has changed military operations forever by creating a transparent battle space. There is no longer any way in which an army, navy or air force can expect to move around the world in, in, at any scale and not be spotted from space. So we saw the Russian forces forming up on the border for months. So that was, there was no surprise there uh, at all. The shock was the intent behind it, but I, but I think even that we were pretty clear on. And so the combination of what you can see from space using commercial low earth satellites and what you get from open source data means that there's way, way more information for the intelligence agencies to absorb, though they do have to make sure they are careful on verification, attribution and geolocation. Can it be more of a, of a hindrance than an asset when you have this volume of material that has to be sifted through, including, as you say, potentially fake material? So there are lessons about managing the volume. And, and essentially, this is a whole pile of data that you will need artificial intelligence to sift. And intelligence organisations are learning how to do that and, and actually doing, I think, very effectively. But the other thing, of course, this is a two-edged sword. If it's open source, it's open source. So one of the things you'll notice about the Russia-Ukraine war is that we get quite a lot of information about what the Russian forces are doing and relatively little about what the Ukrainian forces are doing. And that's because organisations like the US intelligence organisations are making sure that material that would help the Russian war effort doesn't make it out. 
Well, let's bring in Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Michael, you've spent decades analysing conflicts around the world. Do you find the work of amateur open source intelligence analysts like Kyle helpful or, or can it be a hindrance? It's almost universally helpful. You could see this sort of thing developing during the Iraq and Afghanistan operations, but in the last six or seven years, it's really come into its own. And organisations like Elliot Higgins' Bellingcat have really led the way in showing just what can be done and in educating others in running training courses so that, you know, as Kyle said, that he starts as an amateur, but he's actually a pretty professional forensic specialist now. And the point is that he may not be a military specialist in terms of military hardware, but if he can verify an image, then there's an army of the what I call the military train spotters out there who will tell you exactly what sort of weapon that is exactly when it was introduced and very often where it was manufactured they have come together to create a world of real transparency now of course it can be perverted and the Russians have tried and I guess the Ukrainians may have tried a couple of things I'm not certain about that but I mean only a couple of days ago the Russians tried to put out a fake BBC report and it was it was taken down by the community of people out there within minutes but the majority of the observers who are trying to follow what's happening in the war can take some comfort in Mm. the the truth comes through eventually that's the point I would make and in terms of what's happening in the war in Ukraine potentially the most significant event this week is Moscow appointing a new commander General Alexander Dvornikov it's the first time there's been a single commander for the whole of the operation is this going to be a turning point for Russia's operation Well, I don't know if it'll be a turning point because they've got big problems, but it may make a difference because Dvornikov is experienced. He was the first general to be employed in Syria when the Russians went into Syria in 2015. He is a combined arms man. I mean, he actually does know something about putting all of the elements of infantry and armour and air together, which they've singly failed to do so far. And he's certainly not stupid. He listens to advice. He doesn't sort of boneheadedly go ahead. And he's also commanded in the Southern Military District. He's been in lots of military districts, but he spent most time in the Southern Military District, which is right next to the Donbass. So the chances are he knows the Donbass separatists quite well. So if anybody can actually make some greater coherence out of their military effort, I think it's likely to be Dvornikov. Yeah, so just take us briefly through the map of who's got the initiative where. Has it changed much in the last week? It's solidified, I think, in the last week. And what we're looking at now is this attempt by the Russians to create a line effectively from Izium, which they have taken uh, in the uh, in the Donbass area, from Izium down to Mariupol, which they think they'll have taken in the, in the next few hours, and to trap as many as they can of the Ukrainian defence forces on the wrong side of that line, to the eastern side of that line, so that they'll have surrounded them in effect. But having said that, that line that we're talking about is about 300 kilometres long, Even the bits between the Russian forces that now exist is 150 odd, 160 kilometres long. So it won't be straightforward for them. And they're still moving very slowly. We're not talking about rapier thrusts here. We're talking about an attempt to push forward and join up a northern and a southern front. And the Ukrainians, as always, are being pretty inventive in finding ways to slow them down. Michael, stay with us. Now, what a difference 13 weeks and one Russian invasion can make. In January, Finnish MEP Hena Verkunen told us about tentative signs her country might eventually abandon its historic non-aligned status and join NATO. During the last weeks, there has been very active discussion on this and also uh, members of different political parties has been supporting the idea to join NATO. So. 
I think things are now moving slowly towards NATO membership. So how likely do you think it is that Finland will join NATO this year? I'm not sure that it will happen so, so fast. Now, though, Finland's prime minister says it will decide within weeks whether to apply for NATO membership. If it does, Sweden looks likely to do the same. Finnish membership would extend NATO's border with Russia by more than 800 miles. And if both joined, almost all coast on the Baltic Sea would be NATO territory. But would bigger be better for NATO or just for its new members? Dr. Mernie Garson is a lecturer in conflict resolution and international security at University College London. Finland has its strength in the fact that having to uh, constantly be aware of its need to defend, they have a strong standing uh, army that they can mobilize quite quickly. They have good air power, both uh, Sweden and Finland have good air power that they can contribute to the defensive alliance, as well as their undersea and naval capabilities. So Unlike other countries that have had to join the alliance at at different points, they do offer sophisticated capabilities across the board that would contribute to the alliance. Um, The additional value add that also Finland brings is intelligence sharing. And obviously with their proximity to the border, they've got a well-developed intelligence gathering capability that would also be of value to the alliance. But given that Sweden and Finland already join some NATO exercises and are members of the UK-led Joint Expeditionary Force, how much of a difference would it really make in terms of military capability for the alliance? Well, I think it would formalise that capability and certainly help Finland particularly is a country that punches above their weight, particularly with its ability to actually call up boots on the ground if it were necessary. So where in previous expeditions, it's been a little bit more tokenistic, sometimes only a company, sometimes a little bit more. Uh, This would give a significant more weight to the NATO alliance. Obviously, they are a flank state. They are a frontier uh, in this respect and therefore important to NATO. And adding that land territory of Sweden and Finland, how much of a help would that be to the alliance balanced against the fact that it's a much greater area to potentially defend? It is an area that is greater to defend. Having said that, Finland itself is able, has always been prepared to defend that territory. So it would be an additional defence. So they're not unprepared to defend it themselves. It would just add additional weight for the alliance. But as I say, the strategic importance of defending that border now is even more critical, given that it seems to be Russia is in a revisionist phase. And within those countries, um, obviously, Russia would be angered if they decide to join NATO. But within the actual countries themselves of Finland and Sweden, not necessarily going to be smooth. There might be a backlash there. Currently, public opinion in both countries are higher than they've ever been. So previously, under 40% or so in Finland for joining it, um, even less in Sweden. Interestingly enough, public opinion in Sweden is very much linked to whether Finland joins as well. So if it's Mm. just Sweden on their own, Public opinion sort of dramatically dropped to about 20%, um, much over 60%, uh, sort of uh, in it's sort of around six out of 10 people saying that right now 
would be in favour of joining, uh, sort of in Sweden, would be in favour of joining if Finland uh, joins it currently. I think the, the latest polls in Finland, it's about 68% of the public now would like to join NATO. So that's a massive shift in how the public feels. International security lecturer Dr. Melanie Garson, uh, Michael Clark, Russia has publicly warned Finland and Sweden against joining NATO if they do apply. Melanie Garson points out there's a potentially risky window while they wait to become actual members in which Russia might choose to attack before they're covered by the Article 5 guarantee of one for all, all for one. How, how real is that possibility? Uh, not very, in my view, um, because, first of all, the Russians have got their hands full in Ukraine. And secondly, the idea of some sort of bolt from the blue attack, you know, with what? With air power, with missiles, starting World War Three, in effect, I would would be, even for Putin, I think, a bit of a stretch. Just at the Not even cyber, Michael. Yeah. There might be cyber attacks, and I think they should be con- they should be thinking about that and concerned about it. But as Melanie was saying, that that um, Finland and Sweden are are so close to the NATO alliance already, so I don't think that you know this gap between applying and becoming members, which might be quite short in any case, I don't think it's a time of great vulnerability, to be honest. And would Finnish and or Swedish membership provide strategic military advantage to NATO? Is is it just about the bigger political clout? Oh no, I think it'd be a big advantage. I mean, this is the enlargement, of course, would have been completely possible in 1994 but this is the one that I would have favoured at the time I, I've been long a bit sceptical about the way NATO has enlarged itself almost willy-nilly you know from 15 or 16 members now to 30 members but these are the two you would always have wanted in because strategically it gives NATO a, a very solid northern flank these two powers are militarily significant it makes the defense of the Baltic states Estonia Latvia Lithuania very very much more plausible much more practical and of course it gives NATO a much better handle on the high north and the Arctic which is becoming a new front in the whole contest between Russia China on the one hand and the western powers on the other. Now we talked earlier about how the tiniest details of 21st century wars can be seen online within moments. 40 years ago as Britain's task force was sailing across the Atlantic to retake the Falkland Islands it was very different. Pictures could take days to get back. Reporters had no mobile phones or internet, just very limited satellite bandwidth for the occasional crackly phone call. Well, now one Falcons veteran has embarked on a project that allows us to experience the story of the war the way we would do now. William Spencer is tweeting daily updates that tell us the story of the liberation of the Falklands in real time, just 40 years later. With the advent of of modern technology, uh, it's a a very interesting way of sharing experiences from 40 years ago with the modern twist. Of course, in 1982, we wrote letters that took weeks to get back. I took over 300 photographs. I carried a camera with me all the time. And so it's just basically trying to rerun the war in real time whether it's just writing a narrative of of 280 characters or actually tweeting images of relevant documents, it means that people can see how the British government's thoughts developed, how the, the task force was built up and set sail, how the army got together and were put on the ships. And so it's just a, a, a development, but just 40 years later. And how did the idea come about? The original War Diary F82 uh, Twitter handle was started by Professor Tony Pollard at the University of Glasgow in 2012 as part of the 30th anniversary. And then um, Tony and I have been working together 
Uh, after I left the Royal Navy, I spent 25 years uh, working at the National Archives, where I was the, the principal military specialist. So I got lots of digital images of Falklands-related documents. So tweeting them now means that people can discover little bits and pieces about what they may have done or what their family members did in 1982. And tell us a bit more about what you did in 1982. What was your role in the Falklands War? I was a very young, 18-year-old engineer, so I described myself as a baby veteran. I was on a a Wessex 5 Squadron called 848 Squadron, D-Flight. D-Flight's six aircraft were carried on the Atlantic conveyor and with a skeleton crew and then the rest of us flew down to Ascension Island where we uh, met up with the conveyor, uh, worked on the aircraft and then I sailed south on the Norland with two para. Unfortunately when I was in San Carlos the Atlantic conveyor was um, sunk and the aircraft were lost so um, I was thrown off the Fearless when I came home on the Hermes. William, I know it's 40 years ago but do you remember those events like they were yesterday? There are certain events that are indelibly stamped. You can remember where you were on certain days vividly. There are certain triggers um, that make you think, oh yes, I was here then, or smells, for example. Smell of aircraft fuel, being an aircraft engineer, is something that I'll never forget. Uh, The sounds of the Hermes action stations, but uh, where I was on on the 21st of May when the Norman went into San Carlos, watching the the SBS attack the Argentine position on Fanning Head, uh, watching HMS Antelope um, explode and sink, um, and being on the Hermes when uh, the Argentines surrendered on the 14th of June. In researching it and planning the tweets, did you find anything that surprised you? Not necessarily um, surprised me. There were things that made me sit up and think, oh yes, I'd forgotten that. But I suppose the important thing Tweeting is is watching the reactions from the people who are following the Twitter feed from all over the world. And it's not just people interested in the war. It's both British and Argentine veterans, um, historians, um, people who are interested in, in South America in 1982, a wide variety of people for lots of different reasons. So it's their reactions and then having to respond to their questions and their comments that's, mm. the, the, I think, one of the, the great things about doing this as a live feed. You mentioned that you're being followed by both British and Argentine veterans. What kind of reaction are you getting from the Argentine veterans? Well, um, we're all professional servicemen, so that it's all positive. You, you, if anything, you're just giving them pieces of information that they may not be aware of um, or they have only recently discovered. And, of course, um, the difference in the, in the two governments, the regimes, is there are lots of things relating to the Argentine activities from 1982, um, which you don't find representative representative in their own archives. So what I'm tweeting, in many cases, is, is the British side of events from 1982. But at the National Archives at Kew, for example, there is an Argentine army historical report relating to, it's their history, but it's translated into English. So so I've been making sure that I'm trying to tweak bits of that so that you do actually get a, a much more um, balanced account of what went on in 1982. And how does it feel to be a history researcher, researching a piece of history in which you played a part? Well, when I joined the archives, I said I'd stay there long enough to see the records relating to my war. And of course, they're, they're, a lot of them are available. They're still 
several hundred that are still in the hands of the Ministry of Defence. But it's a way of, um, yeah, reminding myself of, of, of the events of 1982 and trying to be independent and trying to share it with interested parties um, and then just watch, sitting back and watching how people react to what was part of my life. Falcons veteran William Spencer, and you can follow his tweets of the Falcons War 40 years on at War Diary F82. Uh, Michael Clark, a final thought. Right now, a big chunk of the world seems invested in the outcome of the war in Ukraine. The Falcons 40 years ago seem very much left to Britain and Argentina. Did it matter to the rest of the world? No, not very much. <clears throat> I mean, it mattered hugely to Britain, a matter for our self-image, our reputation in the world. And of course, it mattered hugely to Mrs Thatcher. People forget how unpopular Mrs Thatcher was for the first two and a half years of her premiership. And the Falklands turned all of that around. So it made a big difference to Britain. But to be honest, it wouldn't have mattered to the balance of power, the balance of forces in the rest of the world, whoever had won the Falklands. It seemed like a rather quaint war of a, a former colonial power sending a task force 8,000 miles to kick a, a group of soldiers off an island they had no business on in the first place. It was, it was a sort of spectator sport at the time. But now, when we look at the Ukrainian war, this is hard to interpret quite what's going on in Ukraine as, in, as, as this war develops. And it's hard, even harder, to work out how it might end and how it might work out. Mm. But in contrast to the Falklands, however it works out, the fact is there is so much now at stake in terms of world politics that we're in a new strategic era. Whoever prevails in this war, and we are on day 49 of a new world. Professor Michael Clark, thank you for your time and my thanks to all of our guests. If you want to hear more from Kyle Glenn about how and why he spends much of his spare time analysing open source intelligence, there's an extra edition of the BFBS SITREP podcast online now with the full interview. We're back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>